Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in lovely Cape Town, South Africa. Good afternoon, Kobus. Hi, how are you? Wonderful, and、uh, we are just thrilled today to have、uh, a guest who I've wanted to have on the show for quite some time because、uh, her her topic and her area of expertise is something that we've talked about on this program for for many many months.、Uh, Elshe Furi、uh, joins us from Brussels. She is a PhD candidate at the University of Trento in Italy, and she is writing her dissertation or has written her dissertation on、uh, the the Chinese、uh, model and the development model, and we're going to talk about her. Dissertation、uh, in, as it relates to Ethiopia and Kenya. Elshi, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Okay, so we've got three topic、uh, topics as always.、Uh, we're going to first dive into a very controversial article that came out、uh, in a publication in South Africa called Nose Week, which、uh, a little bit of、uh, you know, I hate to say the word, Kobus. Is it inappropriate for me to say yellow journalism? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we can talk about it, but yeah, okay. So a little bit of race baiting, a little bit of race baiting, anti-Chinese,、uh, rather xenophobic journalism coming out of South Africa, and we'll kind of talk about a, a very strong reaction also that came、uh, that came in response to this piece. Then we're going to turn to to Elsha's、uh, dissertation: New Maps for Africa, contextualizing the Chinese model within Ethiopian and Kenyan paradigms of development. Yes, it does sound tremendously academic and potentially boring. But I assure you, this is actually going to be one of our most interesting topics.、Uh, Elshi, don't take offense, but sometimes our audience, when they get when they hear the academic side come out, they they feel we get a little too wonkish here. But we're going to make it entertaining, and then finally, we're going to end on a discussion. About、uh, Chinese elites, Chinese and the elites in Africa, and kind of the the, the symbiotic relationship that's forming between those two,、uh, in terms of、uh, particularly in Kenya. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So we're going on a little more on the academic side the, today in the podcast. So let's get started, Kobus, first with、uh, "How's It China," which is an article that came out in、uh, in the publication Nose Week. Now, what's unusual about this, in in some senses, is the really strong. Very, you know, very clear, somewhat conspiratorial, anti-Chinese, xenophobic message that came into this. That by itself is not surprising because we've seen a lot of anti-Chinese rhetoric coming up, particularly surrounding the idea of merchants in and Africa, Chinese merchants in Africa. But Kobus, tell us a little bit about why this article caught so much attention, in particular because of the、uh, of the publication that it was in. Okay, so Nosebeak is run by a guy called Martin Feltz, and it's it's almost like his own personal zine. You know, he he, he, wrote, he writes a whole bunch of of,、uh, of the articles himself. He has small staff,、um, but it is published commercially in South Africa. And、um, so he was one of these、uh, anti-apartheid,、uh, you know, kind of legendary journalists. And and since then he has kind of curdled a little bit, you know, and.、Um, he, You know, a lot of his work has to do with criticizing the South African government, and my feeling is that in this case, he's pretty much using the Chinese as a stick to beat the government with. Um, and、uh, you know, in, in this case, it's、um, it touches on some actual problems in relation to the amount of, of you know kind of Chinese traders who now work in South Africa. But then he kind of weaves it into you know kind of with a lot of conjecture. 
picture and rumor and so on into this kind of yellow peril narrative, you know, kind of where South Africa is being overrun by Chinese and, you know, they're kind of, they're taking over the retail industry in South Africa and they're cheating the tax man and so on. So, you know, it, it, it turns pretty racist in, 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 you know, in at, at terms. Well, in, in one of, to one point, he talks about how there's some, somewhere between six and 12,000 Chinese merchants who have now come into to South Africa. And this is one of the more popular lines, effectively forming the country's biggest ever chain store. And I guess what's so insidious about that is this idea that somehow all of those 6,000 Chinese who are there are, are working together in some kind of nefarious way to undermine, uh, to, you know, to undermine South African businesses. Uh, you, you know, and the other kind of one of the other key points is that he does, you know, really come off, you know, come out against the, the, Af- the South African government for not enforcing immigration laws. Uh, Elshi, when you when you read, you know, journalism like this and you read this kind of this, this point, he's tapping into a big, big reservoir of hostility and growing frustration that not only people in South Africa are having, but in Zambia, in Malawi, in Nigeria, elsewhere, about the growing presence of Chinese merchants. Um, as with all stereotypes, caricatures, and xenophobia, there is a grain of truth. When you read this article, which side of the equation did you fall on? Was he being hysterical, or is there some legitimacy to the point that he's making? Well, probably a little bit of both. Um, I, I agree with Kourbis that he conflates, you know, a, a lot of sort of important points into into very simplistic and and and, and unnuanced ones. Um, the, the way it's written really is it doesn't just sort of um, describe stereotypes, but does also endorse them. You know, one of them is, for example, kind of very very sneakily sort of narrating how people from Fujian province in China are seen by other Chinese people and then to kind of, as if to say, this is also what they're really like and this is how they are also acting in Africa, you know, and in South Africa. And those kind of things I think are really, are really, you know, don't belong in a serious publication. Um, but I do think part of it, part of his, um, I, I, I think that, the, the, for example, the, um, that the Chinese government, uh, that the South African government treats um, Chinese immigration differently from immigration um, from the rest of Africa, for example, or sees Chinese Im- migrants as um, more, more sort of seeks to court the Chinese um, government to a greater extent than, than it does other African governments, I think, is something that perhaps could have been written but more sensitively by another kind of article, a, a more serious article. But yes, I mean, I think um, that it does make a lot of mistakes. It, it for example, says as well that, um, that um, Africans, uh, South Africans are welcoming Chinese migrants with open arms, which is just simply not true, you know, so there's a lot of, of falsehood there. Yeah, well. I mean, Kobus, I want to bring up a point that Elshi kind of touched on, which is in terms of the, the level of Chinese immigration, illegal or otherwise, into South Africa. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that pales in comparison to the illegal immigration coming from Zimbabwe and from some other of, of, of South Africa's neighboring countries. So, wh- yes, I mean, the context I just mean, isn't there for that. Exactly, you know, kind of. There's there's some some um, studies have found that 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 almost half of Zimbabwe's original population are now living in South Africa. You know, so that might be exaggerated, but I mean, it's much much more than than the Chinese. So, you know, kind of, it's 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 just it's so galling, you know, kind of, among other reasons, because he he takes this tone of like, oh, we're blowing the lid off something, you know, kind of using all these these kind of leaked reports and you know and so on, speaking to people off the record and so on. But all of this 
scholarship is open on, you know, kind of this, uh, you know, people like me, you know, kind of like the whole like scholarly community is dealing in the stuff who's, you know, kind of who's been, you know, kind of working on this stuff for, for years and years and, you know, and, and I have, have a lot more to kind of, a lot, lot more kind of a nuanced kind of view of all of this to offer. I think the one thing that they, that they point out is that the immigration system in South Africa is broken. Um, incredibly corrupt, really dysfunctional, um, you know, people who, you know, not only the Chinese, but, but all kind of all immigrants have lots and lots of problems um, getting their files dealt with, getting their documentation dealt with. I mean, f- friends of mine who are like Germans, you know, kind of head of think tanks, um, you know, kind of in, in South Africa, they have problems getting the immigration status sorted out. So, you know, in that sense, the, the dysfunctionality of the police, of the of the immigration system and the corruption, I think they point out. But it's the way that they then kind of link it to this kind of innuendo of like, oh, they're also having children, you know, and you see these, these Chinese toddlers playing in the aisles in the shops. It's like, oh, come on, you know, it's really okay, well, so racist. Well, well, okay, so, you know, Elshay, you know, I'm going to, you know, Hit, hit talk about the obviously let's the proverbial elephant in the room would we be talking about this article if it was if it was published in in in, in nairobi or in sudan or somewhere else is this a, an issue and we're talking about it because it does harken back to some of the the very very prominent racist history in south african journalism the fact that this is south africa that he is touching on some racial uh very sensitive racial issues how much of that do you think plays into this well, I think, I think partially perhaps the South Africa's history makes it a particularly sort of volatile issue to deal with and particularly interesting from an, from an academic and from a policy point of view. Um, but I think also South Africa is seen as a bit of a test case in Africa too for how it deals with these, with these things because there's also a sense that if South Africa can't deal with it, you know, will any other country be able to deal with sort of um, – a new a new engagement with China, a new engagement with with um, Chinese migrants, and a feeling that uh, of all countries, maybe South Africa should actually be more understanding or more um, more more able to sort of um, incorporate that multicultural aspect into into its into its thinking. And as we can see, you know, there's still a lot of problems. I think, I mean, in my views with elites, I still um, came across quite a lot of um, even in Kenya, a lot of similar feelings um, feelings of, of not wanting the, the population to become Chinese, you know, as some people would put it, as some people did put it in my interviews. So I think these, these um, trends are happening in other countries too, but, um, but maybe South Africa is particularly interesting in this regard. Well, it really shows you the complexity of the China-Africa relationship. Obviously, on this human level, it gets very, very uh, nuanced. And, uh, you know, in terms of you know, this idea that, A, the Chinese are a, a single entity and a single group. Kobus, you know, I've written about this. You've, we've talked about this, that this is obviously a very diverse, uh, you know, homogen. It's not it's the farthest thing from a homogenous group. Secondly, uh, to, to Elsha's point as well, which is that this is, uh, you know, something that's happening across the continent. So we're seeing different countries deal with this differently. And maybe South Africa is some kind of a bellwether, uh, in part because it's got a more advanced media uh, so that these issues are coming to the surface a little bit more. Speaking of that, uh, unfortunately, it's very, very difficult for people to actually see the Noseweek article and to read it online because, Kobus, as you mentioned, uh, you know, this is a publication that's behind, you know, a 50-meter-high paywall, correct? 
Yes. So. Yes. So I mean, kind of they, in order to read the full article, they want a subscription. Uh, you know, or you need to get the paper version, which is only available in South Africa. So it's a bit hard to see the full thing. But you, you can get a. You know, if you read uh, the rebuttal that was uh, posted on the the Daily Maverick, you get a pretty good rundown. And uh, and that's just about to point people to. Uh, we'll put this up on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/China-Africa-Project. Uh, two of my favorite writers now on China-Africa issues, Kevin Bloom and Richard Poplock of uh, of the Daily Maverick, uh, wrote a stinging rebuttal to to almost point by point to to the to the Noseweek article. So you can get a sense of the Noseweek article even if you can't have access to it just by looking at the rebuttal. And again, you'll be able to find that on our Facebook page. So, uh, very interesting uh, topic. Obviously, a topic that we will come back to in almost every week, it seems like, in terms of this increasingly tense relationship between Chinese merchants uh, and, and various African populations across the continent. Let's move on now to our second topic, and we're going to turn uh, mostly to Elshe on this one. Uh, new maps for Africa, contextualizing the Chinese model within Ethiopian and Kenyan paradigms of development. This, of course, has been your labor of love for how many years now to actually get your your, your PhD dissertation out? Four. Okay. Four more or less. So, uh, so <laughs> a subject that you know very well. Let me put, before we get started, put my, you know, amateur theory to, to you and, and then have you kind of use that as a gateway to, to get into your thesis here. Um, I've, I've argued for, for quite some time now that there is in fact a battle of ideas that's out there. Well, most Americans believe that the battle of ideas died with the falling of the Berlin Wall, that it was communism and, and kind of Soviet-style communism and, and, and American capitalism or the liberal democracy, the Washington Consensus. And, and the world that, as I see it, is into three categories. You've got the kind of liberal, small L, uh, you know, capitalist model, uh, you, you know, Europe, U.S., uh, Washington Consensus, if for lack of a better word. Then you've got the Beijing Consensus, which is state capitalism, state authoritarianism. And then you've got religious extremism. And we see religious extremism playing out in Nigeria, certainly in Mali right now and whatnot. And these are the models that a lot of developing countries are looking to to, to build their societies on. Uh, first, is am I in a um, is the, is there any merit to that theory that really there is a battle for ideas and that the United States and the West has to recognize that in fact there is a war for ideas and that countries are shopping now like never before you know, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Kenya, and whatnot? Or is this overplaying it? Well, no, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you that the key here is that there is a battle of ideas. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons I really was interested in this topic, because so many people look at China in Africa, for example, from a um, from a material point of view. And they look at, you know, the, 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 the roles that Chinese imports play or that um, Chinese, go, you know, political ties with Africa, how they're shaping up. But but beyond that, there's also a, on top of that, there's, there's a, a really... Um, idea-based or ideological um, element, which I think people don't re- don't see, and, and that's you know not just China's engagement with Africa, but development in general. Um, and and I would probably in my dissertation, I the, the way that I sort of classify these different ideas are not, are not exactly along the lines that you that you suggested. Um, there, there's some similarities, but basically, um, I sort of look at the evolution of development theory since since the post-colonial era, which is when development came up as an idea. Before that, economics was just seen as applying to all countries, and then development economics became an individual, uh, a different sort of way of approaching um, the, 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 the development of poor countries, post-colonial countries. Uh, and, 
And I argue that we're going back to a lot of the ideas that, that came up in the 50s, a lot of the ideas of modernization and modernization theory. Uh, and that's, this is one of the key ideas that's winning the battle. And China is one of the countries behind its, its, its success, but it's not the only country. Actually, a lot of countries that have recently de uh, developed very quickly in Asia also um, embody this notion of modernization. And, and yes, liberal countries and postmodern countries such as um, countries often in the West do have to realize that they're going to have to sell their own model, their current model, much better and the model of development which you see in the developing world much better than they are at the moment. I don't think they get that, though. You know, when I talk to people about, you know, that China, particularly in the West, or Westerners, not in the West, but nonetheless, they're, they're surprised that everybody doesn't look to the West as, of course, that's the model that everybody wants. Don't, doesn't everybody want to be like America, or doesn't everybody want to be like the French? And so there's this real kind of shock and, and sometimes real genuine surprise that the Chinese could ever be a model for anybody, because in the West, the, the kind of the narrative of China is this, you know, awful Tiananmen Square, human rights, you know, all these human rights violations, this horrible environment. They're, you know, they can barely take care of themselves. And yet, so when you actually walk them through the outlines of what people admire about the Chinese model, um, there's real surprise. Do you find that as well? I do, although I think part, part of it is that um, people don't recognize the... the um, that their own histories, uh, countries don't re realize that their own histories have often been closer to that of, of, of modernization of the Chinese model than they think. So, for example, people might, it might very well be the case. Often I found elites in Kenya, for example, wanting to, to end up eventually like the, what they would call the advanced countries in, 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 in Europe. But, but, but seeing that as um, state building, for example, or um, economic growth ahead of political rights, and seeing seeing you know um, East Asian countries as a, as a stepping stone or or a gateway towards becoming like the West, and they argue that the West denies its own history. The West doesn't realize that it itself you know um, used a lot of the techniques and approaches that it's now um, condemning in developing countries. So there's this um, this real sense I think um, in the West that. That it's that 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 the West has um, always presented a different model from from Asia. Where actually, um, maybe people who in the West who wish that African countries would would emulate them um, might might actually think twice if they knew which elements of their history, you know, Napoleon era or um, you know, real um, Bismarck in Germany, for example. But people actually in Ethiopia cited Bismarck as a model. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, just, Kobus, before I get to you, one more question for Elshe. The uh, Quickly sketch out for us, when you talk about the Chinese model uh, and, and what you know people in Ethiopia or Rwanda or Kenya are looking to, what exactly is the Chinese model? What is the outline uh, of that model? Well, I actually broaden it out. My question was initially, how, how um, important is the Chinese model to African elites? And my answer actually took me a little bit away from China and towards East Asia in general. So in the end, I end up defining not really a Chinese model, but more an East Asian model um, or a model of modernization. And can I be specific here? When you say East Asian, are you referring to like a, a Confucian model? I mean, is this particularly focused on Confucian societies? No, it's it's not necessarily. Although um, a lot of the elites, I, I let the elites define the region themselves because when 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 African elites told me they were looking to East Asia, I often you know asked them what they meant by that, and generally they meant sort of the ASEAN uh, ASEAN countries, um, but especially 
in uh, Ethiopia's case, they meant South Korea, um, China, and uh, Taiwan to a certain extent. Okay. And in Kenya, there was a lot more interest in Malaysia and Singapore. So they wouldn't necessarily say, put it in cultural terms, also because, of course, if they want to emulate it, it, it won't help if it's a Confucian model. That, that, that makes it too culturally limiting. The idea is that actually it's not rooted in a particular cultural orientation, but that it could be strengthened. So I did sort of um, identify several lessons that they take, and I'll, I m- might not share all of them with you, but I'll share two or three just to give you a flavor. One is, for example, a faith in science and technology in development and a faith that um, t- solutions to underdevelopment or to poverty lie in uh, intensive use of science and technology, even perhaps sometimes at the um, cost of, of environmental protection, for example, or at the cost of um, sustainability for the time being. And then there's a feeling that once we've harnessed science and technology and used, for example, um, bi- you know, used um, uh, moderate, you know, genetically modified technology in terms of agriculture, later we can move towards the sustainability issue. So that's one lesson they draw. Um, a second lesson is um, a, a real... Uh, um, emphasis on physical infrastructure, on the um, importance of building um, bridges, dams, dams particularly being a big symbol of, of, of having made it as a country, and the need to perhaps invest in institutions at a later stage again. So as you can see, another lesson is actually the idea that development is staged and that it happens in phases and that you shouldn't try to do everything at once the way that the Washington Consensus wished countries to do it. You, you know, Cobus, that all sounds extraordinarily reasonable. So why do you think there's so much uh, resistance in the West to the idea that China can present itself as a development model in Africa? Well, you know, I think I think it maybe you, you might have to ask, you know, kind of which West you're talking about, you know, kind of um, because obviously, um, for example, uh, putting development before environmental issues, you know, kind of that would resonate with certain kind of people in the West and would horrify other people in the West. Um, I think, um, you know, maybe, you know, there's the West obviously sits at a, a different kind of moment in, in the development curve and they have counted the costs of a lot of the, a lot of this kind of really kind of hardcore development. I think similar to the Japan is similar in that sense. Um, so they have a, a slightly less kind of starry-eyed, um, you know, kind of view maybe of this stuff, and at the same time maybe less of a of a um, an understanding of how much how big a problem the poverty is in Africa. Um, you know, kind of so that yes, it's fine pollute the air because we need to get these people working. That doesn't make so much sense to to uh, you know kind of the West as it does to the Chinese. Um, that that might be one one thing. I think the other um, is a, a kind of um, discomfort with the with the role of the state um, and that the general the, the power of the state in relation to NGOs and you know, and uh, civil society. Um, and uh, you know, I think there, there's strong tradition in in the West of of distrust of the state. Um, and uh, actually, I want to ask Elsa. Also, you. Um, you pointed out um, in your conclusion that uh, you know a few points that I found very interesting. One was that there is um, in in both you know both the Malaysian and uh, you know the uh, both of on the Ethiopia, particularly in the Ethiopian side that there is a belief in one for the need of the need for cultural modernization, um, and then also um, a belief that initially economic growth 
has to be accompanied by a very strong government and, and sometimes, if need be, a suspension of political freedom. I was wondering if you could perhaps tell us a little bit more about that. What do they mean with cultural modernization? Yes, this is probably maybe the most controversial point, actually, um, that came up as, as a lesson of the East Asian model. Um, the, the 50s, you know, the mainstream modernization theory, which was um, really pushed by the West in the 50s, also shared this. And there was a sense that um, you need to change people's habits and people's way of thinking before development can take place. And if development isn't taking place, it's partially rooted in cultural problems. This is something which is anathema. This idea is anathema to modern development, which has, you know, seen a lot of um, input by NGOs who believe, you know, in, in bottom-up, grassroots, you know, local-led initiatives, at least in theory, if that's not always the, in practice. Let's be fair. That's the propaganda from, from – that's what they say. Yeah. That's not necessarily but what they do. But that's the idea anyway, and that's mm-hmm. one of the ideas that's doing battle. You know, and, and that's the idea that's losing in a way, I think, because there, there's um, – there, there's a sense in Ethiopia particularly, but also in Kenya, that, that, that poverty stems from backwardness. That's how people put it, to put it bluntly. And, um, and, and I do think we can see resonance um, in certain ways that, uh, Chinese, that China has approached development. The anti-spitting campaigns, for example. You know, um, telling Chinese citizens not to spit in the streets, you know. Or telling Chinese citizens to queue. Um, and that here we become almost anthropological, you know, the idea that... Um, you're going to, you need to develop a new set of modern citizens. And, and of course, you know, a lot of people will have very big problems with this idea. You but, know, uh, yeah, no, that's fair. But, but I, if you, if you've listened to the show, you'll know my, my, my disgust for the aid business in Africa. Uh, and the fact that, you know, the Chinese make a very good point that, you know, $1 trillion and 50 years later and, you know, um, you know, Western aid has done very little to actually reverse, uh, you know, the, the problem of poverty in Africa. So a lot of people look to, uh, and this is, of course, Deborah Braudigam's main thesis in her book, um, that, pe- that people look to the Chinese model and the Chinese are using their own experience. But I guess when you were talking to Africans, particularly African elites and policymakers, I'm curious how much they really understood about China. And that is, and this is, I'm going to be the devil's advocate here. Um, you know, China is a place where um, it's, you know, it, it's having a massive crackdown on, uh, on, the, on, on the press and on media. It, it, it does not hesitate to, to employ extraordinarily aggressive uh, birth control techniques. It's got obviously, you know, controversial policies in Xinjiang, in Tibet and whatnot. Um, and it, it, it's a pretty aggressive place in that sense. Um, it's also one of the most polluted uh, countries on earth. Do they understand the consequences of modeling themselves after a country that has as many problems as China does? Um, just that, that depended a lot um, on elite, um, from elite to elite. But in general, it was a case of selectively taking from the model. There, there was always the understanding that if taken to extremes, um, these are the things that result. And um, some people probably were also less than honest in their, um, in their, in admitting just how much they would want to go to that extreme. But, but in general, there was there was always the um, the sense that we could that, that countries could selectively take the the certain aspects yeah. of of the Chinese model. And it's, perhaps perhaps that's actually a flaw in the thinking um, because there is a question of how how much can you take the economic. How much you know? How much can you really, if if you uh, if you want to, for example, build a bridge very quickly, and you need to, you know, g- get rid of everyone who's living on that area, then how much can you really um, separate, polit- you know, 
political rights from economic development is a good question. You know, uh, Kobus, we've seen, I guess, the two best examples of the China model, if you want to call it that, or the state authoritarian capitalist model uh, being implemented in Africa, I think, is Paul Kagame's Rwanda and uh, uh, in Ethiopia, which are the, probably the two most aggressive uh, endorsers of, again, the East Asian model, if you will, in that sense. Um, do you think that they are, are kind of using that selective, you know, going to the buffet and picking what they want, or are they, you know, rejecting the West and kind of embracing the East? Is it a bi, you know, a binary choice uh, for these uh, for these countries? Well, you know, I think. One of the interesting things is that in both um, Rwanda and in Ethiopia, you had very, very powerful leaders, um, you know, these kind of like intellectual leaders, um, you know, Kagame and and particularly Malaysia Nawi in Ethiopia, um, you know, I think also pointed out in, in work that, that these unpublished manuscripts that Malaysia Nawi wrote is actually part of their kind of development handbook, you know, so it seems like it, it's it's they're kind of picking at the buffet is then filtered through a very kind of indiv- individualist or, or you know, one individual sensibility, um, and in in the process I actually want to ask Elsa to to expand on that and also at the same time like ask her, you know obviously one of the one of the big one of the very special aspects of China is the fact that so many of the people who are very uh, very high up in the party are as engineers, um, you know, there's the a preponderance of engineering degrees um, in, in the elites in China. Um, and to, in terms of training and in terms of this kind of like, uh, you know, kind of the the, the development, the, the fields of, of the elites, like, like who actually are the elites in these countries in Africa? Like, do they do they share a similar kind of background? Are they, are they also similarly trained and like, you know, kind of, um, and do they also, you know, do, do you see a, a similar kind of... Uh, yeah, a kind of direction that they're following in, in, in that sense. Well, it's interesting, Kobus, that you bring up the, um, the individualistic aspect of these, um, of these campaigns because, in a sense, that's one of the lessons, you know, that, that, that development takes, takes an, a visionary, strong, centralized leadership and often, you know, embodied in, in a few people. That's one of the lessons that people actually do take from East Asia. So it's perhaps no coincidence that they, they became embodied in Kagame and Zanawi. And, of course, we should also mention that now that Zanawi is no longer in the picture, um, Ethiopia could very well end up um, being d- distracted very much from its quest to emulate East Asia, um, depending very much on the direction and the, you know, that, that the country goes and the strength um, of vision uh, that uh, that um has, you know, the, the new, um, his replacement. Halimariam, I interviewed him actually, and he seemed to have um, a similar, he was sort of a protege of Melis, so he has had a similar viewpoint, but whether he has the charisma and the um, the connections to carry it out is, is an open question. So everything we say about Ethiopia is a little bit hedged, you know, or couched now in, in, in uncertainty. But to, to answer more directly your question, Kobus, um the engineering question, it's very interesting that China's um, elites are, are um, engineers. And, of course, the, the, the coincidence with the term social engineering is perhaps not ex- exactly completely unrelated. But in, in, in Ethiopia and Kenya, the elites are not, by and large, engineers due to reasons, other reasons of history. But there is a need, there's a real sense that the future leaders should be engineers and should be people who are trained in uh, technical and, and technological aspects of development rather than lawyers or people who have studied humanities. Um, quite a few people, for example, the education minister, um, 
and the science minister um, in Ethiopia would tell me that um, they want people who can get their hands dirty. None of these useless BAs hmm. is the way that you know, it was put. Um, you know, we need to really... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank goodness uh, we're not looking for jobs in, in necessarily in Ethiopia because we could all be yeah, all be in trouble. Well, let me let me ask you you know two questions uh, that are that are linked to one another. One first to to an acknowledgement of uh, President uh, Barack Obama's reelection uh, this week uh, to to the to the presidency of the United States. Uh, so that implies that in the United States you probably will not see a dramatic change in policy in Africa. So I'm not I'm not sure if you've ever had a chance to speak with the likes of uh, Assistant Secretary of State uh, Johnny Carson, who oversees Africa policy for the State Department. Uh, for the United States, um, and if you ever had a chance to talk with someone, him or on his team, about these development models, who are probably again, I've met with Carson uh, on one occasion, and he is from a different planet when it comes to these kinds of ideas. Um, he really does not have a clue, and I'm, I'm genuinely, you know, I, I pitched my theory to him, and he thought I was just completely moronic. <laughs> so, uh, but if you have the opportunity to talk to American policymakers or Western policymakers and to present your idea, what would you tell them? Um, about uh, about this particular about this idea of, of a development model that the Chinese mm-hmm. development model is something aspirational for certain countries yeah. in Africa. I think I would tell them that they perhaps should. Um, yeah, they need to become educated in the history of development theory, for one thing, because it doesn't help to just narrowly focus on, on policies and on how, on how um, individual policies can, can be tinkered with or, or changed in a very sort of limited way. They need to sort of be um, – everybody in the State Department should actually be educated on the history of development theory and how it's played out and how, how different countries uh, approach this, the, these theories. And that, that sounds like a real academic making work for themselves, I suppose. Good luck. Uh, but but I do think and I think that they don't. I, I think there isn't the realization that um, this isn't just about development. In the end, um, the 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 the, develop, the countries that um, are seen as development models in Africa are also countries that are seen as understanding and more sympathetic to the predicament of African countries. They go hand in hand. So it, it doesn't help for to, to have to, to try to see good relations with Kenya on the one hand, but then be giving development policies or trying to push development policies that Kenyans don't see as relevant to themselves because the two go completely hand in hand. Okay, so let me ask the follow-up question. Uh, I, I live in a developing country and I meet with, you know, aid workers too often. Um, I, in Africa, I, I bumped into the, to the aid industry all the time. And there is a, a blanket, outright, just universal condemnation of the Chinese on the part of most aid workers that I've met uh, in the aid industry. They're not de- democratic. They, they don't have any history here. They're even shut out of a lot of forums, the Chinese, you know, on the ground. Um, and so what would you tell the aid industry? Uh, the same, you know, same, same question in terms of, you know, framing this discussion of the development model. These people presumably know about development, but at the same time, there is a lot of resistance to the Chinese model. What would you tell them? Well, before I sort of answer that um, directly, just I, I do agree with you that there is a lot of resistance to the Chinese model, but aid workers also tend to be quite cynical about their own governments, I think, very often, and their own organizations, actually. So I think a part of that is the cynicism of being an aid worker. Okay. Um, which seems to, so I don't think I, – I haven't seen a particular sort of um, disregard. If anything, I would say aid workers are more inclined to, to, to entertain the notion of different valid models. 
than people, you know, in the countries from from which they hail. Sure, but Um, valid is a relative word. They don't consider an anti-democratic authoritarian model as valid. But they also would say, for example, that the West isn't truly democratic very often. I mean, of course, this is a strong man. But, I mean, I would probably, in a way, I mean, what I might tell them actually is, is be a little bit more proud of your of your own development model to a certain extent because I feel that um, there's a lot of they're having a lot of I've been on panels where the EU for example is the only representative of of quote unquote the West and there've been African governments and and Asian governments on the same panels and the EU is always caught on the back foot now is always caught um, having to defend itself and I would tell aid workers that if you are convinced. It, if you're working for an organization and you believe they're doing um, they're doing more good than harm, then I think stand up for those ideas because in the battle of ideas, maybe nobody is immune from – maybe everyone is pushing an idea and maybe there's no such thing as being hovering above it all and, and being truly impartial. Kobus, I'm going to give the last word to you on this. This idea that for the first time in the post-colonial era that African governments and African communities have a choice – whether they go the buffet route, whether they go the the more authoritarian route, whether they play the IMF off of the China Export-Import Bank, but they have a choice. Uh, What's the symbolism and the importance of that? And I hate to kind of set that up in a leading kind of question format to you, but this idea of choice being important. I think, you know, in in making these choices, what's really going to be revealed is the relationship between African governments and their citizens, Um, how the elites see the citizens, how they see the local culture, um, you know, and how they are viewed by um, by their their own people. Because frequently, you know, a lot of the resistance, um, the China China related resistance and resentment in Africa comes from this idea that the government is in China's pocket and they they're ignoring the normal people, you know, kind of as they always do. So I think it becomes in in making these choices and arguing for these choices, what it, those those choices also become a kind of an X ray. Of how the relationship is between the government and the actual people, um, and in in many African countries, I would say most African countries, that relationship is very problematic. Um, there's a lack of of communication. There's a, they're not on the same page. Uh, they don't trust each other, and I think there, um, you know, kind of it becomes really really difficult to to actually push any of your the choices that you've made through, because what you frequently find is that you get kind of, you know, there's a kind of a bit of a war of, of attrition, you know, kind of um, where, uh, you know, people, you know, small communities feel that they are under siege and at the same time the government feels that they're not, so they're not really being allowed to push through whichever it does they have. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that's going to be a, a very big issue in the future. Okay, well, we'd love to hear what you have to say on this. This is obviously an issue that provokes a lot of emotion uh, on all sides. Um, you know, there's a lot of Chinese nationalist opinion that comes out on Weibo and some other places on this point, and certainly uh, the aid industry and, and on the policy side people have very strong opinions facebook is our place to express those opinions and we really really invite you to share your thoughts on this and what you think of the chinese model um we'll try and find a way to put a link to the dissertation to elshi's dissertation do you have this online anywhere or is this kind of just in pdf form in in closed distribution 
I have aspects of it online, but I'm sure I can probably also organize. Um, it will be online soon. And in the meantime, I can I can definitely provide you with a few links. Great. Well, uh, and when, so we'll post that up on our Facebook page as well. And it's it's really excellent reading. Uh, we're going to move on very quickly uh, to our third topic. Uh, and this is going to pick up on one of the themes that we discussed, uh, you, you know, on this Chinese development model. But the idea being that, uh, you know, the role that Chinese elites are having in, uh, in, in, in modeling change in Africa and whatnot. Kobus, you picked up on this. You've talked about this quite a bit. Bit. But this idea of, uh, you, you know, we, we, you, you sent around a number of articles today about golf courses being kind of developed in, in Kenya, uh, and, and Chinese are funding these, they're actually constructing them, and there's this increasing uh, collusion, if, if that's the right word, between African elites and Chinese elites. Uh, Elshie, what is the role of Chinese elites and African elites in, in, in Kenya and Ethiopia, according to your research? Well, I think um, there, there's been some very interesting sort of um, writing on on the role on on the relationships between these elites, and I think I think one thing that that the because it is a close it's it's a ever ever sort of um, narrowing relationship, and and there are there, there are problems, but on the whole, um, I did find African elites to be much more um, much more favorably disposed towards Chinese elites than 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 to Western ones very often. And, and I think part of that is that the West didn't realize for a long time just how disempowered and how humiliated African elites did feel and how China treating them, you know, in a different way and, and sort of um, speaking to them on bilateral, in, bi- in bilateral terms and um, taking each country and, and, and really sort of rolling out the red carpet for it. I think people really didn't understand that, that symbolic element of politics and how important it was for African countries to be seen as, as diplomatic equals in the international arena. And, and to me, that's definitely one of the wake-up calls um, that's come from it. Um, so it, it's interesting to see. I do think, though, there's going to come a time when probably relations might become a bit more, more difficult. Uh, there's still a bit of a honeymoon phase going on among elites, N- not among locals anymore, because I think that that honeymoon phase has worn off already. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see in the future whether or not um, there's more suspicion and, and, and growing problems that develop. Is this, is this a source of concern in your opinion? I mean, people, when we, th- when we hear rich people building golf courses together, especially in places like Africa, where the, the divide between the rich and poor is already among the widest in the world, um, is this a, something that people should be worried about? Or is there something benevolent about the, the relationship between the elites in uh, the Chinese and African elites? Well, I wouldn't want to condemn it outright because I think there are some good aspects about it. But on the other hand, it, I do think it's, it's very easy for, for an African leader to now to, to sort of appear progressive by saying, um, by, by bad-mouthing the West and, and, and choosing Chinese elites and in the end um, doing that in a way which does, um, doesn't necessarily enfranchise or empower um, that, that elite's own people. So there's a way of saying, um, you know, all you, all you people complaining about our golf courses, you weren't doing this when the West was building them, so don't start now, you know. And I think criticism of of, of uh, elite-led system and criticism of, of uh, overly elitist um, policies is valid no matter who it's leveled at, whether it's leveled at, at you know, African and Chinese um, collusion or, or African and Western collusion, which both have happened. Both of them are, are, are equal targets um, 
if they if they go if they disenfranchise local people. And Cobus, you know, we've been talking about obviously almost every week now for the past six months on the the growing hostility towards Chinese merchants and that lower class of Chinese immigrants in Africa. Do you believe that there is that the next wave of criticism might come to the to the wealthier Chinese uh, immigrants? You mean from the merchants? Uh, no, I'm saying that, you know, obviously there's been criticism of, of, of Chinese merchants and, and, and poorer Chinese who have come. Now we're talking about, you know, the elites have been insulated from that criticism. But do you foresee the day that possibly that the same level of vitriol will be directed towards wealthy Chinese businessmen in, in places like Zambia and, and Malawi? Yeah, it might. You know, I mean, um, I think one of one of the realities in Africa is that elites are kind of helicoptering in and out all the time. You know, so it's not only the Chinese elites, but I mean, there are there are all of these. Uh, you know, obviously, you you, uh, you would know better than me in in the DRC, for example. There's all these um, these obviously these incredibly big uh, mining companies who work there, and then they literally fly there. Some of the really kind of top level engineers and so on, they fly in via helicopter um, into these compounds and they, where they live, you know, guarded by armed guards sure. and they fly out again. Yeah, but I'm not sure those so, are the elites that, that we're talking about here. There's uh, and, and Solange Chadelach has a lot of good research in Zambia on this about a, a, a entrepreneur, a, a very successful entrepreneur class uh, in Africa that is not kind of jet-setting in and out, but they've, they're building businesses, they're extracting natural resources, they're the middlemen between the Chinese. Uh, that, that's, that's my impression of what, of what we define the elites. I might be wrong. Yeah, I think I think for for those, you know, we, we might have to be, you know, develop a new a new kind of like taxonomy of elites, you know. Um, but yeah, I think in in that sense, I think those those people probably are coming in for some resentment, and um, they are in South Africa. They already are. Um, not only the Chinese, but also in, you know, kind of their Indian counterparts frequently come in for a lot of res- of, of resentment. Um, I think also it's it's what's interesting for me is um, is how they these elites are slowly but surely kind of developing an international kind of language of what it means to be an elite, of what what it means to you know what kind of lifestyle that elite lifestyle is you know kind of so one you know one of the um, things that I was that I was sending around for this for this um, topic was. This very funny for me um, ad for a chef in Botswana who's going to be at some resort in Botswana, and um, you know, and, and this, um, you know, what 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 kind of food you need to, to be able to make, including sushi and Cantonese food. Those are the two, you know, kind of that people need to that the chefs they they need to be able to to be you know prepare um, efficiently. And um, so it's very interesting to see how things like golf, like certain brand names like sushi and so on, that they're becoming this this kind of um, internationalized language of consumption, um, and that you know this the way that the kind of the Africans are jumping on the same train that a lot of other elites are jumping on as well. Um, that just uh, it, it, it it intrigues me. You know, kind of it's interesting to see how they they're all developing the same patterns. Well, it's a fascinating discussion. Oh, go ahead, uh, Elsie. What final thoughts to you? Yeah, just a final uh, uh, One thing I liked about you sending around that link and and suggesting this as a topic was I think it really shows that. Um, China in Africa operates at so many different levels, or Asia in Africa at so many different levels, and it, that it's also really interesting to study it from a more sociological point of view and really see that it's changing patterns of consumption, it's changing lifestyles. It's not just happening at a political and economic level. Um, so, so that's something that I think is, is, is really interesting just to look at golf, for example, as a microcosm. 
Okay, well, on that note, we're going to have to wrap it up. Elsha Kobus, thank you so much. And uh, just before we go, I want to give a quick shout out, uh, Elsha, to uh, the Oxford University China Africa Network, which you, of course, are a volunteer with. Uh, they're doing some excellent research and work on that. Google them. You can find out more. We're hoping to have some of those folks uh, come on the show again at a later date. Uh, of course, if you want to follow what we're doing, Facebook is the best place to go, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the, the top China Africa headlines of the day almost every day of the week. And, of course, if you want to get the podcast, uh, Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, we're everywhere we need to be. We'd love for you to subscribe, also to leave your comments, especially on iTunes, as that really helps us uh, move up in the iTunes hierarchy. So that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. We'll be back again next week with another episode. So until then, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>